This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the Late Late Show. My name is Catherine Taylor. Tonight, my special guest is Professor Rachel Lofthouse. I'll be chatting to Rachel about all things teacher professional learning as we discuss her research into supporting teachers into becoming research engaged, reactive and reflective professionals. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Late Late Show, everyone. I'm Catherine uh, Taylor speaking here from Buckinghamshire in the UK. On tonight's show, I'll be talking to Professor Rachel Lofthouse. Rachel is a professor of teacher education in the Carnegie School of Education at Leeds Beckett University, and she has a specific research interest in professional learning, exploring how teachers learn and how they can be supported um, to put that learning into action in their practice. Tonight, we'll be discussing Rachel's research into the conditions that that support teachers to become reflective, research-engaged practitioners and the factors that best support teachers' capacity for professional learning. Remember, if you're listening in live and you'd like to join us either live in the studio to to ask questions or to chat or to post questions in the chat um, for Rachel to answer, or if you want to call in and speak to us, then please download the Podbean app or visit TD. ttradio.org and click on listen live on the home page this should take you directly to the show and there you can post comments and questions during our conversation once i've spoken to rachel i'll open up for anyone who wants to call in you can then call by pressing the icon at the top of the screen on your phone's app click this and i'll be able to connect you and i'm delighted to uh, welcome professor rachel lofthouse onto uh, TT uh, Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for for joining me this evening. And um, how how's your day been? How are you? It's been fine, thank you. Uh, pretty wet here in Yorkshire, but apart from that, all good. Excellent, excellent. Um, right. So I, I, let's have a quick chat then. Could you set the scene for our listeners and just let us know what a typical day or week is like for you as far as your current role is concerned? That is a very typical and good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but actually, there's nothing typical. And that's one of the things that is both enjoyable and also quite occasionally frustrating about the role. But the job that I do includes Um, And I've done a bit of this today, a bit of it last week, a bit of it the week before, developing and leading teaching programs, um, thinking about those as individual sessions, but also as coherent courses, Um, thinking about doctoral students, uh, thinking about how to support my doctoral students and my master's students. So today, for example, I've been allocated a number of dissertation students um, who will all complete their dissertation this year for their master's. So I'm finding out a bit about them today and also conducting my own research. So thinking ahead, what research am I doing now? Where am I taking that? What do I want it to lead to? What are the questions 
that are emerging as the evidence comes in. Mm. That's quite a typical process. And then thinking about partnership work and community building through collective ed and a variety of other projects. That sounds really interesting and diverse and, and it kind of strikes a chord with me because um, I'm, I think, well, I don't know if, you, if other people listening probably don't know that I'm sort of on my, uh, hopefully the final stages of my ED at the moment. And uh, I, I just can't imagine ever doing another research project ever again after this one, not because I don't like it, but because I can't imagine getting to this point again. Um, uh, but to have that as your job, I think, you know, that that's uh, pretty exciting. Um, in terms of the way that you kind of interact with with new and emerging teachers in your in your work, it would be really interesting to hear from you about, you know, what attracts you to the sort of emerging professional um, sort of field, if you like, the initial teacher education and so on. Well, I guess like a lot of us working in education, the things that pull us towards a future are the experiences that we're having now and our reflections on the experiences that we've had in the past and how we connect those through to what we hope for in the future. So in terms of my research in professional learning, I've always been very proud of my career as a teacher. Mm. And I still see myself as a teacher, but as a teacher, it is going back to the 1990s. I was in a privileged position to be able to work alongside other teachers through networks to develop practice through the university that we lived close to. So we were part of research networks. We were part of funded research projects, but also we were very fortunate that the local authorities that, that we worked with had this holistic understanding of how they could support the development of practice in classrooms, the curriculum making that teachers were able to do by supporting teacher learning. So mm -hmm. I feel as if my own experience made a huge difference to my interest. And then when I became a teacher educator, clearly I was, I had that chalk face responsibility for supporting teachers with a range of different expectations for themselves in their future roles and different backgrounds to become the sorts of teachers that they could be proud of and to flourish and to do really good work. So having the opportunity to continue to unpack and understand that through research has always been the privilege really of my role. That's, that's really interesting and thank you and I, I wonder actually just taking you back to that time when you were in in schools were you involved in mentoring a lot of um, student trainee teachers at that time um, and I've, I've just been I confess I've just been reading a paper you sent me over and I've just realized I've said student trainee teachers which is really mixing <laughs> it up there because I know you like to separate those things out we can maybe talk about that in a, in a little bit but were you involved as a practitioner at the time in, in bringing teachers through in their early career phases? Yes, yes. So in the, I taught for 10 years in secondary schools and in the second job that I had for five years, I was a head of department, but also always a mentor for student teachers um, who came through the Newcastle University Partnership. Um, and that, that direct uh, mentoring experience was what 
if you like, formed the foundation for my work as a teacher educator. Mm. But again, it was both the one-to-one -one experience with the student teachers that we hosted, um, but also the opportunity to, to work as a visiting lecturer occasionally. Mm. So to go out and, and observe other students teaching in their contexts and to work with their mentors and to think about that moderation process but also to occasionally go into the university to uh, support talk sessions so that we were able as a cohort of mentors to draw really explicitly on the particular skills and interests that we had and bring that into, you know, into being in our teacher education programs. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. And, uh, you know, thinking about all of these things. So one of the things I found really interesting as I was reading the papers that, that you shared with me um, was about the the learning journey of the mentor as well as of, as of the student teacher. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about kind of the professional growth from the, the mentor's perspective. Well, I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that just as every student teacher is unique, every mentor they work with is unique so the that means that every mentoring relationship and partnership is a unique working relationship um, and i guess as educators it is relatively natural to extend our role into mentoring uh, but it doesn't mean it comes easily because mm -hmm. as educators in schools as school teachers we're clearly dealing with uh, children and young people We've got um, in a secondary school, a very particular subject specialism, hopefully, and we're working towards a very particular curriculum in a primary school. We've got that, that greater breadth that we're working with. Um, but we're thinking about ourselves as the adult working with the child or the young person. When we're thinking about mentoring, clearly that shifts. It shifts mm -hmm. into a working developmental relationship between two adults. And there is always um, that, 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 that switch you have to flick, I think, uh, to remember that yes, of course, you're there to support their learning and their development, but you're also there as a colleague in that moment, but also mm. in that they will become a future colleague for others like you in the profession. So there's, there's quite a lot of opportunity to broaden out your your understanding of education as a, as if you like, as a, in, in the context of schools, but also mm -hmm. education beyond, you know, working alongside children and young people to working alongside adults. I think it's a very interesting role. I think it's one that we, there are lots of pitfalls, without doubt there are lots of pitfalls, but there's also lots of opportunity for formative development along the way. Yeah, no, I think that that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of um, uh, trainees and also ECTs and their mentors and, uh, you know, seeing themselves as people who are in receipt of CPD is sometimes a challenge for workload reasons, for other kinds of reasons. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 a quite a difficult tightrope to walk I think um I think, as the I, think person it is. It. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really is and I think it to be if we're absolutely honest it's got it's got much tougher and mm. it probably is about to get tougher still 
um, because of the extra demands of the of the new accredited programs, the new DfE accredited programs for ITT. You mean the, they, the, the ECF as well, or? And, and the ECF. Yes, certainly the the capacity for mentoring in many schools has needed to be doubled, if not mm. more than doubled, because of early career teachers also being required to be formally mentored. And the expectation for the training of mentors is mm. increasing. But also, I think we're in a, we are in a different world. We're, we're, we're working now in a world which is more prescribed by the DfE. And that, to some extent, gives us a scaffold and a structure, but to other extent does make it sometimes significantly harder to really um, shape the experiences that we offer to our student teachers through mentoring to suit them their needs and their context mm. Mm. yeah no no it's it's a it's very interesting i've recently taken on this role and i'm sort of really finding out about it i certainly won't consider myself an expert but it's uh, i'm finding out all kinds of things um around that um listen rachel we've had a brilliant talk so far i do have to to play our messages in the news so i'm just going to mute us both for uh, about seven or eight minutes if that's okay and then we'll come back and have a bit more of a chat of course Perfect, thank you. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service, known as UCAS. The students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive Sander Crystal described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure, which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas, which is up by only 2%. However, 
The total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. A drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was in the news again this week as she told English schools that parents have a right to view the sex education materials which are being taught in schools. The announcement comes as the government is due to launch a public consultation into relationships, sex and health education. Guidance has been in place since the subject became compulsory in primary and secondary schools in September 2020. But Miss Keegan said she wanted to debunk the myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Jeff Barton of Askell said he agreed with transparency on RSHE materials and that this is key, but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States, but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13 and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit in addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador Hamza Yassin will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean or keep them warm, the BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom received free uniform, trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families described themselves as living in non-secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in B&B accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, The Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution, including physical ill health, mental illness, school absence and poor behaviour. 
Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as one in 10 school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021 to 22. Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face in recruitment and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the DV have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. And welcome back to uh, Professor Rachel Lofthouse. Thank you for, for holding on there uh, during the news and the uh, messages. Um, I'd just like to bring our chat back round again, if I may, to your experiences of leading teacher development. And I know that you have been involved uh, in designing and developing a model that supports um, teacher career, indeed lifelong professional learning. And I wondered you if you could just walk us through the principles of, of that model, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, I can do. It, uh, it's, it's typically as a model, it's, it's easier to understand visually, probably. Than <laughs> That's by, great for a podcast. <laughs> I know, than by describing it in a paragraph, but I'll do what, I'll do what I can. It Thank comes... You. The, the model comes from my own PhD research, which itself was based on publication. So a, a range of different papers, chapters and research reports, which I then synthesized to, uh, to understand from them what could be understood about teachers learning and the relationship to the development of their practice. Mm. And the, the very heart of the model is a sense of activity, that learning is an active process, but it also immediately throws up a warning, which is that it is easier to keep people busy and for people to look and feel busy than it might be to really enable substantial professional learning with a link to the development of practice. So. It, it, it suggests, if you like, that we need to pay attention to the nature of that busy work. Mm. So at the heart of it is a sense that there's a lots of different types of activity that can support teachers to learn and develop their practice, including things like being mentored if you're a student teacher, being part of coaching practice if you're a, if you're a teacher um, or a leader and, and your focus is on leadership development or being part of a, a teacher learning network where there's a shared focus and maybe some, uh, you know, some development of materials and ideas and people go away and practice and they come back and discuss and reflect on the impact of that work in their own classrooms. Maybe action research, maybe even attending CPD mm -hmm. and keeping some kind of reflective journal or discussing with colleagues later, some of the learning from that CPD. So of course, there's the there's this busy work, mm. and the, and so designing work that really works, if you see what I mean, matters yeah. more than making sure you just keep people busy, because we're busy enough. But then there's also a sense of what can we do that really powers up 
that work. So regardless of whether our attention is on mentoring or coaching or teachers undertaking research projects or teachers trialing and um, practicing techniques that they're learning in CPD sessions, there are certain things that are likely to be attributes that really help that to generate impact. And one of those things is the, the need for that work to feel authentic, for it to be very deeply rooted in the context. So it's not just bought off the shelf mm. or um, generic. So that authenticity matters. Also, the need for that work to be based on and also help to generate a sense of solidarity. So that shared concern for uh, children's learning outcomes, children's welfare, whatever the, that the real purpose that that work is, that that's shared amongst colleagues, but also is understood and felt to be of value by the students in the setting. And another attribute is the attribute to think creatively, to think beyond the literal, beyond the obvious, mm -hmm. and also to be given permission to do that. So that yes, you might hear of a really fabulous way that somebody down the corridor to you is teaching, but that might be in a different subject area or in a different key stage. And you've got to think creatively about how you adapt that and make it make sense in your own context. So on one side of the model are these attributes with the idea that if you are mentoring or coaching or thinking about CPD, if you can build on and build in those attributes, it is more likely to have impact, it's more likely to be engaged with, and it's more likely to translate into changes in practice. And then on the other side of the model is a sense of, so what happens? What happens when teachers learn and what happens as they develop their practice with confidence. And this is more than just picking up a new additional technique and sticking that into your lesson routine. Learning mm. is more than that, I think. So there again, there are three things and they don't necessarily come in this order. They, they, everything's always in relationship with each other. But one of the things that ha starts to happen when teachers really learn and develop their practice is that they, they learn from and are also able to critique uh, information they're given, mm. practice they see, or their direct experience. That's not the same as being constantly subject to criticism yes, or yeah. being dished or having the role of dishing out feedback, which is, which is criticism. Critique is much more subtle than that. It's about being able to use discernment. So again, you read, you know, get one of your John Cat books from your sponsor, <laughs> read the book, but don't just sponge it. Don't just assume that everything in it is gold. Apply some critique. And also be prepared to share your practice and let people critique that. Again, not in a way that's just about slamming you down or criticizing, but just saying, well, I wonder whether, and have you tried? And 
what happens when and that mm. asking those kind of curious questions really is the critique so that's one aspect learning opens is opened up by critique but also opens up the confidence to critique and i think that really mm. matters that's what that's what keeps us professional and then there's two other elements sorry go on, go on. Go on. well one of them is the ability to articulate your practice so to 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 put into to make visible what you're doing for other people to explain how and why and what mm. in whatever forum whether that's in a department meeting or in a teach meet or in a blog or that that putting it out there and putting it into words explaining to others the more you think about what you're doing the more you if I enter into those feedback loops, the more likely you are to be able to articulate that. That's a really important process and part of learning. And then finally, the recognition and desire to continue to expand your repertoire. So as you learn, putting that learning into practice, learning from that putting into practice continues to build and expand both your teaching repertoire, but also your underpinning foundational knowledge. So those are the things you're looking for in this model to, to be the behaviours that result from learning. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And it's one of the things as, as I'm listening to you speak about it is so much that I recognise from my own research in, in which is into the, the relationships between school cultures and teacher professional development and learning. And it, it my, my experience all there's always this tension isn't there between and i think it's called is it uh, judgmentering um and i think that's like a product of our sort of performative managerial context that we're in in england particularly um but you know in other places as well where people kind of i don't know if there's almost a socialized compulsion to to sort of pick up on on every little mistake and and uh try and get a result a lot more quickly than than you might you know if you invested the time and the you know had a, had a bit longer run at people building up their professionalism you might get a much better result but we we would rather rush and get a quick result which perhaps burns people out and uh one of the experiences that i notice is with with my ECTs particularly, is they cannot wait to get signed off. They want to get off this ECF train. Can we can we get an early release from it, please? All the rest of it. And I just keep saying to them, you know, all they'll do is fill up your timetable and stop your mentoring. This should be a, a this should be something that it, it gives you that chance to reflect. But I think there's such a culture. And I don't know how we get rid of it. I wonder, do you, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think we've, it's been evident for about 20 years, mm. at least, in England. But it's, it's really ramped up recently. Um, and I think we're in a bit of a vicious cycle. Mm. Because clearly, the more we struggle to recruit and retain teachers, the more pressure there is on the teachers that we have to perform to their you know, if to the very highest ability very quickly, they're being pushed up the career ladder very quickly, they're ha and the expectations on them are, are high. And that means that they become very self-critical, um, hyper aware of when they think they're 
failing as well as when they think they're succeeding. Mm. And I think we are at risk of micromanaging a lot of teachers because we're conscious that a lot of teachers are still really in those formative stages of development and therefore Mm. to some extent quite vulnerable, but we don't really have the time to offer them as much support and learning opportunities as we might. So we fill that void with micromanagement. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's endemic and that's everyone's experience. That would be a really crass thing to say. But I think we see the signs of that just a bit too often. And I think we also have got into a situation where inevitably, because we all feel under pressure, and let's be honest, it's the same in universities, in teacher education particularly, under under a lot of the new remits. Um, we feel the need to do things very visibly and very much um, at, at a pace, but also very efficiently. And no. teaching and learning probably isn't well suited to those models if we're honest if we Mm. really think about it that kind of efficient at pace deliverable visible stuff there's a lot more nuance there's a Mm. lot more backwards and forwards in anybody's development whether you're three or seven or 11 or 18 or 25 or 30 you know you're not just on a linear track Mm. um it's much more complex than that, but we hardly have time to recognise that. And I think that's a real a real sadness, yeah. really. I mean, when I was starting out on my ED journey, we had to do a, a whole project on professionalism, professional paradigms in, in education. And I, I very much agree that sort of the managerial, um, the pursuit of efficiency, I, I, t- I do believe it's actually not compatible with with sort of genuine teacher professionalism because professionalism does seem to entail this nurturing and this growth and and so we we are i think as as you say we've been in this situation that's been sort of growing and and i think one of the first things i realized when i started reading into this literature is actually quite a sense of first relief and then anger that you know no it wasn't me and this has actually been known about for years. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the, I think education these days is populated by by a, a, a generation of teachers who, they're like the, the sort of the, the frog in the water, or if you like. They don't really <laughs> understand why it's happened. And they, you know, because we're so kind of diligent and conscientious, we all think it's us. Actually, it's not. We're just in this system that that is producing this cognitive dissonance which we can't yes. resolve because we don't you know once you understand it you go oh that's what's happened to me <laughs> oh well, I, <laughs> okay. think, I mean it's really interesting uh, that we are i think now the youngest teaching profession in europe in england um and you know youth brings lots of benefits but also it means that there are fewer people with that um that professional memory mm. um, that of yeah of 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 other times mm. and and that kind of acknowledgement if you like that gradually the you know the it, we've been we've become a bit immune to some of the norms in teaching. I was at a conference last week um, 
and I and I heard a phrase that I should have been aware of, but I, I wasn't from one of the keynote speakers. It was Professor Cheryl Craig from yeah. uh, a university in the US. And she was drawing on John Dewey's work, the, you know, old work, if you like, yeah, yeah. old, thoughtful, philosophical work about teaching and learning. But she picked out his concept of dead space. Um, and he talked about and wrote about dead space as spaces that lack imagination, um, spaces that, if you like, that, that leave people depleted rather than enriched, mm. um, and acknowledged that these are not spaces that are conducive to education, but they are spaces that education is at risk of creating. And then what Cheryl did in her keynote was she drew on the stories of teachers internationally, actually, and she gave narratives from these teachers to illustrate what that dead space felt like to them. And it was things like very fixed instrumental curriculum where the teachers had absolutely no agency for modification, adaptation and attunement of the mm. curriculum. And I think what some of us see and experience is dead space. Mm. And that's not a nice space to be in, but we perhaps haven't acknowledged that that's what it is. So that that's the term I took away from last week's conference that I need to explore a little bit more, I think. No, that's that's really interesting. Thank you. It's not a term I've kind of come across either, but it's, it's a, a really interesting idea. And I think that, you know, one of the things that um, I found in my research, and I don't know whether you agree with this, is that, um, number one, the, the managerial nurse, you know, there is hardly any living memory probably is but that's, that's not quite the right word but it's it's not in our kind of professional memory anymore because you know most of us have been schooled and trained and worked in in that context but it's also the kind of the bit of the the myth that um it's the older teachers who are kind of the grumpy ones the disengaged ones the problematic ones and and in fact, my research has really challenged that because wherever I've heard leaders talking about those kinds of teachers, and then I've looked at my data, actually it's not. It's teachers in the middle of their careers, and I I, I guess there's a squeeze, isn't there, between like that sandwich generation with with their professional learning and also young families and elderly parents and, and all of that stuff, probably, you know, their own health and their menopauses and all of that stuff that goes along um, in, in middle age. And, you know, I wonder what you think about sustaining professional development when, when the squeeze can be felt, you know, and this is probably the mentors who are feeling like that rather than the, the student teachers. I think it's a really, it's interesting how we we tend to deal in stereotypes, don't we? We mm -hmm. can't help it. We, they're shortcuts to understanding. Um, one of the things, so actually the majority of my work now is not with student teachers, ironically. It's with teachers in service. Mm -hmm. um, and also I host networks of uh, quite a lot of teachers in transition. So they're moving between roles. 
Mm. Um, sometimes moving out of teaching into retirement and thinking, what, what next? But one of the things that I learned a long time ago, actually, was how valuable it was to create spaces for teachers to come together in which they can learn when they're not in single cohorts, by which I mean the sorts of cohorts that we typically now see in, for example, NPQs. Now, mm. I'm not, I'm not going to um, badmouth NPQs because clearly they play a part. But if you're doing an NPQ, then you are in a cohort of people who have clearly got a similar professional interest and goal, are likely to be at a similar career stage, have had similar experiences to date, and are working towards quite convergent learning outcomes because that's mm. what the MPQ offers. Mm. What I've realized, first of all, through a variety of research projects and then through creating different communities of teachers as learners, is that some of the most exceptionally um, vibrant learning spaces are very, very diverse. Mm. So having um, a cohort for example on a master's module or a postgraduate certificate module where amongst the group you have teachers in their second and third year of teaching teachers who are in their 20 25th year of teaching teachers in senior leadership teachers who haven't yet dipped their toe into leadership teachers from fe from secondary from primary from early years from mainstream and special and sometimes also teachers from an international um, setting, or and this is obviously really enabled particularly by online mm -hmm. uh, networking. If you can create that kind of cohort, you stop trading in stereotypes, you allow teachers to be really open to what others bring, whether that's mm -hmm. the that kind of genuine curiosity and almost naivety of being relatively new or the more considered, patient, perhaps wisdom of those people who've been around for a while. And you get to a point where you're, you're not just, you, you know, sometimes you get into a quite a cynical space. Mm. And we all do, I do. You, but you tend to come out of that quite quickly because these spaces are also quite unpredictable. So of course, there's something we're all sharing together, whether that's a curriculum that underpins a master's module or, you know, a theme of discussion that we've all come together to discuss. But the stuff that emerges in those discussions is, is both unique in that time and space and unique to the people, but, but how the connections are made. For example, the, the first time I really was aware of this, a master's module on inquiry-based learning with an, a primary practitioner who was trained in philosophy for children, mm. sharing her understanding of that as a, as a way of developing inquiry in learning with a consultant palliative care doctor mm. whose job in a teaching hospital was to work with fifth year doctors in their palliative care module mm. and he was listening to her talking about how eight-year-olds were dealing philosophically with really big questions about life mm. and death yeah. and he 
stole that idea and adapted it and reframed his entire palliative care module for fifth year medical students as a result. Mm -hmm. And they both gained something from that, as did everybody else in the group. And as the course leader, I couldn't have engineered that. That just no. emerged. That's really powerful learning. That is. I mean, that's that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I've, I'm a, actually, I happen to be a philosophy for children practitioner as well. Um, and I can really imagine how powerful that, that must have been for, for those um, for those children, um, but also for for the for the doctors involved, um, it's it's interesting because I, one of the things I've been thinking quite a lot about is how do you put the structure in place that protects the time and um, facilitates um, people getting together, you know, having the logistics that supports them to meet and and have projects to work on and all of that kind of stuff without going down a bit of a cul-de-sac of groupthink. Um, because one of the things I've noticed is that where, where school leaders abandon the micromanagement and kind of go completely the other way and just have like almost a radical agency because they want to protect teachers from, you know, Ofsted or whatever, then whenever they do try and introduce something new, people are really suspicious of it. They don't, they're not used to having to go to extra meetings or a meeting to, to have a reflection after the training and things like that. So it's putting the structure in, but it's not, it's keeping it flexible enough to, to not go into that groupthink kind of cohort space. Does that make sense? Yes, and it is, it is truly challenging, I think. Um, and I think particularly for teachers when if you're like, at the end of a working day, you, you're absolutely exhausted. Mm. And then somebody comes along with their kind of, oh, shall we? We do this amazing thing together. Let's give ourselves some time to think. I mean, that's often the last thing you want to do. Um, and clearly, you've already identified some of the real challenges around time and resource. Um, I think there's a few things that can help. And one is a sense of, of consent. So of course, there's an expectation that teachers invest in themselves in terms of their own professional learning and development. So, and I don't necessarily mean financially, I mean, mm. recognizing that that is part of what it is to be a professional. Yes. And privileging that and rewarding that as far as it's possible to do. I think that matters. So we say, this is this is a part of your job and let's let's allow you a space to make some choices to what aspects of that you consent to be part of at this point in your career. Mm. So I think choice is, is important. But I also think that there are some things that we can do that, that help. So, you know, I, for example, on a lot of courses, the notion of reflection is really fundamental. But it can itself become really quite a chore, mm. um, particularly if you know, at the end of every week, you're supposed to write a reflective journal that looks similar to last week's reflective journal, which looks similar to the one four months ago. You know, that starts to get quite tedious. So there are certain things that we can do which help to, to scaffold reflection. Mm. 
for example. And, and having a suite of tools that you can say, is it helpful this week to do a critical incident analysis, for example, of something that you noticed or something that cropped up that you'd like to pay attention to? Forget everything else. Forget what your target was, if you had a target. What actually emerged mm -hmm. that you could analyze using this scaffold of a critical incident analysis? Now, you might do one of those one week and then not do another one for another six months or a year. But the fact that you've got the tool and the yeah. choice might actually be the, the bit that motivates you to think, yeah, that's helpful for me today. Um, if you've got a tool such as an understanding of, I, I use the ecological systems tool, for example, mm -hmm. where, again, you, you might be looking at what's going on uh, with a particular child um, in your class. And of course, you're paying attention to the detail of that child, but you're also starting to think about the ecological layers or systems, if you like, that might be both influencing that child, but also having a, making that child's, um, what they bring to the classroom have an impact on others. So it's this kind of it's having a set of tools that we can use critically and creatively that I think can help. And I appreciate that all of that sounds like a burden at 10 to 10 at night. <laughs> <laughs> but as a program leader or as a, a CPD coordinator in a school, acknowledging that we can be scaffolded to think more deeply, whether that's through reflective tools or through practices such as really good quality coaching and that that we gain so much when those scaffolds are in place or when that time is allocated that actually the benefit starts to be reaped because it allows us to make better decisions in mm. the context in which we're working which means that we faff around less we we go down fewer blind alleys and ultimately over time we start to feel that change is possible if change is what is needed so there isn't an easy answer but i mm. do think that having um having more than a series of powerpoint slides that we can share or a click through online yes. training course those sorts of things are generally not very motivating and we need to we need to lure people in with things that they will find helpful, but that they can choose from when they want that kind of help. I think that would be my ideal. Yeah, it's a kind of like the old. I think it's Aristotle. You know, we are what we repeatedly do, and so if we if we do reflective practice, we become reflective practitioners, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's it's easy to say uh, and uh, structurally, I think, more, much more challenging. Um, no, thank you so much. Um, we've got about uh, eight minutes left. I'm just going to play just two minutes of messages and then we'll come back for some closing thoughts. And if anybody listening would like to put a, pop, put a, uh, pop a message in the chat or to phone in, then please do so. I'm just going to mute us for those messages. Hold on a second. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. 
We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. I'm just going to pause that there. Um, thank you so much, Rachel, for, for holding on the line there. Um, if there is anyone in the studio who'd like to uh, dial in and ask Rachel a question, please do so. Um, Rachel, I want to just, while we wait to see if anyone does phone in, I just want to throw it open to a broader conversation about um, education. If, if you had a magic wand, what would your wish be? Oh. <laughs> uh, that is a that's a tough question um goodness me that is a tough question i think it's probably a, a, an absolutely bizarre response but you said a magic wand i think the opportunity to put teachers um into a bus and do a bit of time traveling with that bus but also do a bit of international traveling so that they see the profession as one which is global and also timeless mm. and, and and feel that sense of you know genuine pride if you like in the fact that we are a profession that is global and timeless but also open their eyes to each other and, mm. and that breadth and the wealth of teaching expertise and repertoire that we have. I think that would be a, a really lovely thing to be able to do. Yeah, that would be. And I, I think um, to have the, the time travel bit as well, um, just to to make some time um, in which to have those conversations, because they, they do always seem to be squeezed out, aren't they? I mean, it's it's a it's a real shame that that people rush so much i've been having conversations today with with people who are balancing so many different commitments and responsibilities and you know the the soft stuff but the yeah. important stuff that's it kind of it falls down the cracks which is a real, yeah, I real think, shame i think a really easy an easier thing to achieve because time travel is quite tricky mm-hmm. um is actually to regenerate staff room culture yeah and i do appreciate that not everybody has always had positive staff rooms to inhabit but i do worry a great deal that having squeezed out staff rooms from a lot of teachers lives we've lost the opportunity for that informal mentoring um and that that support that we get from each other the humor i think 
that teachers bring to their lives. Mm. I think that's missing from a significant number of teachers' lives. So stuff from culture, which doesn't have to revolve around cake, um, although mm. cake's nice, but it's just a natural part of the, the daily life of teachers, a chance to, to chill with each other and share and talk. And yeah, that would be great. No, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm talking, talking of cake. I'm actually in a soup club in our staff room. We, there's seven of us, seven of us and we take turns in making a big vat of soup um every week which is really really lovely but it's probably not everyone's got the uh got the time to sort of cater for that but it i think it is so important and I, I do kind of see it as part of my responsibility really given that i've got to have so much to do with uh ects and i'm also a union rep as well so i just kind of feel like it's important to be visible and around for small conversations rather than having to be sought out for big conversations, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was talking to a group of coaches last year and they were they were funny in a way. They said, before we had coaching, we had staff rooms. Mm. And it's almost as if they, they were imagining themselves back out of jobs because uh, a lot of them were freelance coaches. But they almost wished themselves out of jobs because they kind of wished that we had some of that back in teachers lives mm. no it's it's uh, i think it's it's something that um because you kind of can't measure it and managerialism does like to to have a proxy to measure doesn't it and mm -hmm. because we can't measure it it's kind of seen as unimportant but it, it's i think the the amount of burnout that we see the amount of attrition of people leaving the profession for all kinds of reasons at all kinds of stages i mean it it clearly is telling us that the the soil isn't fertile do you know what i mean absolutely yes it's very unfortunate to have to acknowledge it but it is also essential to acknowledge it mm, yeah I mean, I, I don't know what the solution would be. I mean, I think people talk about there's obviously uncertainty with the sort of politics at the moment. And, you know, I saw something on 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 Twitter where they were saying, you know, don't don't let's have a new government come in and do something radical to education. Just leave it alone. And I was like, well, no, they could fund it. That would be radical um, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, there's just all of these things sort of cost money if teachers want sabbaticals there's a cost to that if, te if they want flexible working there's a cost to that and i think those costs can be offset in the benefits that that people bring back um or the sort of the the richer conversations that have you know if you have a if you have a job share you've got to talk to that person so i think you do gain in other ways financially and and sort of professionally but uh there's just so much squeeze. I just, I think there's a real fear of spending that money at the expense of, you know, keeping the lights on or, or whatever it is, which is a shame. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need, we need, we need to change. And I absolutely accept that that kind of initiative overload would feel too much of a burden for many people at the moment if we had a government that brought in a whole raft of new initiatives in a in a hurry but just a bit of easing mm. by funding mm -hmm. and a little bit of um positive presence as opposed to the more 
negative, quite toxic presence I think people feel the DFE creates mm. at the moment, those would be welcome changes. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we've come, we've got, to, we're very nearly at 10 o'clock. We've come to the end of our chat. Rachel, I'm so happy to have had this conversation with you and thank you, thank you so much. I hope that you've um, enjoyed sharing your views with us this evening. And I know that so many um, Teachers Talk Radio listeners will download this podcast and uh, listen back because that's where most of our um, sort of traffic comes from because, um, you know, it's there along with many, many other topics all week. So um, so please do. Well, it's there for longer than the week. It's there for, for ages, but it's it's there. So thank you so much again for joining me this evening. And uh, I really hope to, to keep in touch with you and carry on these conversations. I think they're so valuable. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Professor uh, Rachel Lofthouse. And uh, I'll close the show tonight. As I've said, there's plenty of um, different topics on Teacher Talk Radio and they are live all week and they are on the podcast um, on Podbean and wherever you get your podcasts as well. Join me again fortnightly at the same time for more Teachers Talk Radio. Bye for now. I've been Catherine Taylor. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.